This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll read to you from the foreword. First article, three years after kosher market shooting, Jews and allies gather to condemn hate. By Jake Wasserman, Jersey City, New Jersey. The hope was that the terrible loss would teach a lesson. But three years after two shooters killed four people at a Jersey City kosher supermarket, those who gathered to commemorate the dead Thursday evening lamented that anti-Semitic incidents are on the rise. I wish that I could say it was a wake-up call, said Scott Richmond, regional director of the Anti-Defamation League of New York and New Jersey. Unfortunately, anti-Semitism has gotten worse since 2019. Richmond spoke Thursday evening outside City Hall to a crowd of about 200 outside that included representatives of other Jewish groups, law enforcement, and local politicians, and members of the community. The ADL reports a 60% rise in anti-Semitism from 2020 to 2021, and Richmond said that 2022 showed no abatement. I can tell you that my staff is literally overwhelmed as we speak, responding to multiple anti-Semitic incidents every day of the week in New York and New Jersey, he said. Anti-Semitism is emanating from a diversity of people and places. Last month, law enforcement arrested a teenager who threatened New Jersey synagogues. For weeks, hip-hop artist Kanye West has been broadcasting anti-Semitic rants. And on, wit- uh, on Twitter, anti-Semitic hate speech has spiked 61% since its acquisition by billionaire Elon Musk. But speakers at the event said there is a reason for hope when people, especially the young, band together to fight intolerance. A group of Jersey City students in the crowd held signs that read, Choose Love, Not Hate, and Love First. If 2022 has taught us a lesson, it is this, said New Jersey's First Lady Tammy Murphy. Our success and well-being depend on the strength and unity of our communities. When we come together, there is nothing we are unable to achieve, and that includes creating a culture of love, respect, and peace. The Jersey killings made international headlines. On December 10, 2019, David Anderson and Francine Graham killed Detective Joseph Seals before driving to the J.C. Kosher Market in the Greenville neighborhood where they shot and killed store owner Mindy Ferenc, employee Douglas Miguel Rodriguez, and customer Moisha Deutsch. Three other people were injured. After a shootout with police, both assailants were killed. Police later found a pipe bomb in the van driven by Anderson and Graham, which federal officials said would have been enough to kill or wound people in an area as large as five football fields. One of the shooters, Anderson, espoused anti-Semitic beliefs and hatred of police and white people, though he criticized the Hebrew Hebrew Israelite movement, which includes some groups that posit fallaciously that black people are the only true descendants of the biblical Israelites and that white Jews are imposters. He also reposited, uh, reposted content and engaged with people associated with the movement on social media, according to the ADL. The movement gained attention in recent weeks after Brooklyn Nets basketball star Kiri Irving shared an anti-Semitic movie espousing the ideas and Hebrew Israelites gathered outside of the Barclays Center in Brooklyn in his defense. 
Law enforcement who worked to limit the casualties that day were singled out Thursday for their bravery. They put their lives on the line along with other law enforcement officials and agents so that this city could move on, survive, and not let this happen again, former FBI special agent in charge Greg Airy said of the Jersey City Police Department. Rabbi Moshe Shapiro of the Chabad of Hoboken in Jersey City led the event in the mourner's Kaddish and recited from the Mishnah, translating for the crowd who do not understand Hebrew. God says the ultimate blessing is if we have peace, he said. We may look alike, we may act alike, we may vote different, we may think different. The success of our blessings is if we know how to do so in peace. And next from the forward, a special report, what it's really like to be Jewish on a campus hotspot of anti-Semitism. A year at George Washington University shows what is often missed by national groups sounding the alarm over the safety of Jewish students by Arno Rosenfeld. The first reports from George Washington University last October were alarming. Someone had broken into a fraternity house and desecrated a Torah, tearing the scroll and dousing it with laundry detergent. The story spread like wildfire online. Hundreds joined a campus vigil against anti-Semitism. The status quo where Jewish students at this campus are fearing for their lives has existed for far too long, declared the fraternity president, Chris Osborne, choking as he spoke. Many Jewish students found the assertion exaggerated. The incident was upsetting but hardly life-threatening. The Torah in question turned out to be a small replica, the kind you can buy for $20 at a synagogue gift shop. And whoever entered the house the night before Halloween damaged the Torah while throwing hot sauce all over the kitchen, ripping out smoke detectors, and toppling appliances. Tau Kappa Epsilon is not a Jewish fraternity, and the motive of the crime was unclear. D.C. police closed their investigation a week later without any leads. But in certain quarters, the incident was held up as a kind of Kristallnacht on Fraternity Row, heralding the peril of Jews at universities nationwide. The head of the Anti-Defamation League condemned it as a blatant act of anti-Semitism, and Alga Miner, a right-leaning Jewish news outlet, called it one of the year's most shocking instances of campus anti-Semitism. This isn't Nazi Germany in 1938. Hen Mazig, a pro-Israel social media personality, wrote the day after the incident, it's American college campuses in 2021. Half of American Jews said in a recent survey that they believe anti-Semitism on college campuses has increased over the last five years. Stories of Jewish students being hounded by peers and faculty regularly make headlines, and a long roster of organizations, including Hillel, Alums for Campus Fairness, and the Amcha Initiative, are pouring money into protecting Jews on campus. Just this month, the ADL issued a report, released a report, documenting 359 anti-Israel incidents on campuses over the past year, including a 9-11 memorial at Michigan State University being defaced to blame Jews, students waving Palestinian flags, harassing students outside a Jewish fraternity at Rutgers, and a student at City University of New York being called a Zionist killer after he asked his classmates to stop sending anti-Israel materials to a course group chat.
George Washington, a private liberal arts school whose location in the nation's capital draws students who relish political debate, has been described as a hotspot of anti-Semitism and hatred toward Israel since at least the 1980s. Jewish on campus, an affiliate of the World Jewish Congress, decried a pattern of anti-Semitism at the school last January, and a 2022 report card from an advocacy group called Stop Anti-Semitism gave it a D, saying students do not feel safe being open with their Jewish identity or their support for Israel. I spent the year since the Torah incident following the Jewish students at GW who were most involved in activism around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the arena where college conversations around anti-Semitism are most charged. I spoke at length with the leaders of GW for Israel, J Street University, and Jewish Voice for Peace, attended several of their events, and spoke to club members and other students during nine visits to campus. All of these leaders acknowledge that GW has had a few clear incidents of anti-Semitism in recent years, including a widely circulated Snapchat video in which a female student threatened Jews. But students who support Israel also said they often anticipated hostility in the classroom or among friends that never materialized. While some reported feeling upset by floods of incendiary posts about Israel from acquaintances on social media, they also said such waves were usually fleeting. Even those who were sympathetic to the missions of national Jewish organizations said the attention they lavish on the campus, on campus, can sometimes miss the mark. Too often they said they spotlight, uh, the spotlight bends toward histrionics, obscures positive Jewish experiences, or simply overwhelms the 18 to 22-year-olds as they seek to navigate the complex politics of Israel and Jewish identity while still making it to class on time. All these organizations have their own agenda, said Jessica Carr, 21, a senior and president of GW for Israel. Even though we might agree with them, we're all pro-Israel, they all have their own agenda and it's not necessarily what's best for GW. Beyond college campuses, rising anti-Semitism in the United States has included synagogue shootings, a rabbi taken hostage during Shabbat services, and beatings of visibly Orthodox Jews in New York. The campus incidents documented by the ADL almost never involve violence and are usually related to Israel. Nearly a year after the Torah was vandalized, posters appeared near the GW Hill saying decolonize Palestine and Zionists F off, prompting another round of online outrage in which some called the early October action vile anti-Semitism. The head of the local Jewish Federation told the Jewish Jerusalem Post that he had activated a security team. Ezra Meyer, a senior and former president of GW for Israel, thought placing the posters outside Hillel's new building was clear intimidation, yet he was skeptical that a flood of statements from Jewish groups across the country would help. It's important to call it anti-Semitism, but I think it's more important to let the Jewish students control the message, Meyer said and to not let outside organizations hijack the stage. Allison Stone, a junior and education director of GW for, uh, GW for Israel, said that fear of anti-Semitism was a major factor in selecting a college. Stone grew up in Las Vegas, where her father chaired the local federation, and she was active in the BBYO youth group. During high school, her rabbi kept scaring me, about anti-Israel boycotts on campuses. 
Wherever you, wherever you go, everyone hates Israel, she recalled the rabbi saying. I was like, that's really scary. I better go to a school with a large Jewish community so I can fight it with them because clearly it's inevitable. She ended up at a campus where Hillel International estimates that 27% of the 11,000 undergraduates are Jewish, making GW the nation's fourth most Jewish private university. But that has hardly made the school, which charges $62,000 in annual tuition, free of controversy over Israel. In 2018, the student government passed a resolution calling on the university to boycott military contractors in Israel. The following year brought the inflammatory Snapchat video showing a female undergraduate laughing and saying, we're going to effing bomb Israel, bro. F out of here with Jewish pieces of shit. The undergraduate later apologized and said she had been drunk at the time. I said was horrible, she told the campus newspaper, The Hatchet. I regret it completely. Shortly afterward, the New York Times published an essay by Blake Flayton, then a GW sophomore, titled On the Front Lines of Progressive Anti-Semitism. He referenced the video and said that he had been drummed out of left-wing circles and branded irredeemably problematic on GW's campus because of his Zionism. Jewish news outlets tracked further flare-ups, an anthropology professor who supports an academic boycott of Israel was named interim dean of the Foreign Policy School in 2020. A swastika and a Nazi mustache were drawn on a poster of Donald Trump and Mike Pence that an Orthodox Jewish student had hung on his dorm room door. During the violence in Israel and Gaza in May 2021, a student sexual assault support group connected Zionism to rape and assault university counseling office accused Israel of apartheid on social media, drawing condemnation from university leaders who were then sued for discriminating against Palestinians. Every time an incident comes up, and we've had our fair share at GW, I brace myself, said Adina Kirstein, the Hillel director, because I'm going to get a lot of calls from outsiders saying, what's the real story? What's going on? The answer to that question, of course, depends on who you ask. Sarah Fryman, a leader of GW's chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace, said she knew that helping place the anti-Zionist posters outside Hillel would be controversial because of the way the organization mixes support for Israel with Jewish programming. But she said that avoiding the building would not have appeased critics. Even when organizers try to maybe cater to avoid being called anti-Semitic, it still occurs, said Fryman, a senior whose club is affiliated with the National Anti-Zionist Organization. It comes to a point where people lose respect for drawing that line. Meyer, the former GW for Israel leader, said that was disingenuous. If they are creating a divide between Judaism and Zionism, why do they feel the need to automatically associate the Jewish Center on campus with Zionism? GW Hillel opened a new building last year on a corner in the heart of the campus that does not prominently feature support for Israel. The Israel Club president, uh, Carr, the Israel Club president, had to hunt in a basement storage area to find an Israeli flag when I visited with a photographer. The only political sign in the building's ground floor windows is about abortion rights. Inside, a wall calendar shows Shabbat dinners, holiday services, and classes with a staff rabbi, as well as Israel programs. Hillel hosted at least eight Israel-related events in September alone, including a visit from APAC and a birthright reunion. 
Last week, there was a talk by a former IDF intelligence officer which sparked a protest outside the building, where about 15 people, including Jewish Voice for Peace members, chanted slogans including, No Peace on Stolen Land and Long Live Palestine. Hillel International requires its affiliates to ban speakers and organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace that boycott Israel or oppose Zionism. While 18 to 24-year-olds are the segment of American Jews most critical of Israel, many still see a connection to the country as an integral part of their identity. Zionism is a part of Jewish identity for 99% of students in the world. Freiman and Rachel Krumholtz, her housemate and another JVP leader, dispute those numbers. Although they agree that most of GW's Jewish students do not share their anti-Zionist views. They argued that many Jews who go to Hillel don't share its positions on Israel either. Their group, which started at GW five years ago, is small but growing. About 70 students signed up at the club fair last year, up from five before the pandemic. GW Hillel said 1,000 students participated in its programs last year and that nearly 3,300 uh, regularly attended events, while GW for Israel averages 150 members each year. Krumholtz, who grew up with Fryman in a Chicago suburb, distilled the friction. Many Jews on campus, including those who run Hillel, view her organization's fundamental opposition to a Jewish state in Israel as an affront. Our tactics and the way we organize is based on our not just belief but knowledge that Judaism is not Zionism, she said, and their responses are always going to be based on their belief that Zionism is Judaism. The protest outside Hillel last week was another case that sparked more drama online than on campus. The talk by a little-known former Israeli intelligence commander named Doran Tenney drew 30 people Outside half that number, including Freiman Krummeltz and at least three other Jewish students, stood with a Palestinian flag, bullhorns, and a banner accusing GW for Israel of hosting a war criminal. There's only one solution, they chanted, intifada, revolution. GW for Israel, which had not responded to the anti-Zionist posters that surfaced the week before, issued a statement that called the protest anti-Semitic and pointed out that the term intifada, Arabic for uprising gener uh, generally refers to periods of Palestinian resistance in which suicide bombers and other militants have killed Israeli civilians. Carr, the club president, said her hand was forced after national organizations condemned the protest. While Jewish on campus created a post about the incident without speaking to her organization, she said the Israel on Campus Coalition helped GW for Israel draft its statement an example of the way outside groups can both frustrate and support students. I don't want to sound unappreciative, Carr said, of national organizations that weigh in on campus incidents. It can be overwhelming, but also really helpful. Students for Justice in Palestine responded by defending Palestinian liberation by any means necessary, while Jewish Voice for Peace criticized a separate statement by G.W. Hillel for depicting the protest as aimed at Jewish students rather than Israel. Yet most Israel-related activities on campus are less confrontational. Take Israel Fest when about 100 people gathered at Kogan Plaza in April for pita and hummus from a local restaurant. The 
club handed out young and wild and Zionist tote bags. Carr said the goal was to normalize Israel on campus. It came a week after Jewish Voice for Peace had co-sponsored Israeli Apartheid Week, and a clock tower in the center of the plaza still bore the remnants of a profane anti-Zionist poster. GW for Israel had largely ignored Apartheid Week, and while organizers of Israel Fest prepared themselves for protesters, none showed up. Nor did they see any snide comments about the event on social media as in past years. Flayton, the George Washington alum whose 2018 New York Times op-ed helped make the campus an icon of anti-Semitism in some quarters, announced in August that he was making Aliyah because of what he described as a growing hostility to Israel at universities nationwide. He said the impetus wasn't one particular moment, but a collection citing incidents at 21 campuses over the last three years. Fueling his own decision and those of other young people moving to Israel, Flayton says, was the cumulative impact of the threatening Snapchat video at GW, a group of University of Chicago students who told their peers not to take shitty Zionist classes and a rock thrown against a glass door at the University of Southern California, Hillel. In college, for the first time, I began to feel the way Jews have often felt in other times and places, like the other, he wrote. Many national organizations have sprung into action to address the situation Flayton described. Hillel is working with dozens of university administrators, including George Washington's, on its campus climate initiative to help Jewish and pro-Israel students. The Academic Engagement Network, Alums for Campus Fairness, Jew Jewish on Campus, Israel on Campus Coalition, Students Supporting Israel, and the Amcha Initiative, among others, all have similar missions. Most were founded during the last 10 years. Dove Factor, a sophomore activist in GW for Israel, opened an event last January billed as a discussion of the climate on campus surrounding Israel by questioning its premise. Having an event called What is the Climate Surrounding Israel on Campus kind of assumes outright that there is a climate surrounding Israel on campus, Factor said, but I want to challenge that. Had members of the club felt alienated over their Jewish identity or support for Israel, he asked. The answer for many of the two dozen students gathered was not really. A freshman in sweatpants and a Cincinnati Bengals jersey said he had seen a poll on Instagram showing that 96% of students on campus were afraid to talk about Israel for fear of offending someone. Another student said that a friend had replied to his text about attending the event with a puking emoji, but that he had shrugged it off. You don't have to make it your whole personality or identity, he said, of supporting Israel. A young woman said she had tensed up when a teaching assistant told a small group she was in to pick a divisive campus topic to discuss, and her group chose Israel. It actually wasn't as bad as I thought, she recalled. It was just about like Iron Dome funding. Another student said that she was initially very, very nervous to take a foreign policy course on the Middle East, but that the only uncomfortable moment had come when the instructor said that he would accept either Jerusalem or Tel Aviv as Israel's capital on a quiz. I have so many red flags up, she said, but so far so the fear of hostility that often fails to appear is not unique to GW. 
Sarah Fredman Ader, who works at New York University's Bronfman Center, said she meets many students terrified of outing themselves as Jewish who hide their mezuzahs, starved Davis necklaces, and yarmulkes. But most of these students personally never experienced anti-Semitism and did not know of any anti-Semitic occurrences on campus, Ada wrote in a recent essay. Their fear of anti-Semitism was informed not by their own experiences, but by what they read online and on social media. That doesn't mean anti-Israel sentiment is hard to find. Meyer, the former head of GW for Israel and now president of the campus College Republicans, said he took a comparative politics course in which the professor spent an entire class comparing Israel to apartheid South Africa. And Carr said the Jewish state often comes up in courses that have nothing to do with the Middle East, usually unfavorably. I'm listening for it, she said, but it's almost every class I've taken. Some of the most intense animosity faced by Jewish students who are critical of Israel, like Freiman and Krumholtz, comes from other Jews. The pair were called wandering around campus during their freshman year, trying to find the room where JVP was hosting a Shabbat meal and running into a group of students carrying a challah. We were like, is this JVP Shabbat? Freiman said, and they looked at us. Death glare, Krumholtz interjected. They looked at us like we were insane. The pressure on students who support Israel and Zionism can be more subtle. When Elizabeth Irwin started at GW, she was eager to get involved in feminist activism on campus. Then she, like Flayton before her, found that many progressive groups were hostile to Israel or, like the college Democrats at the time, remained silent so they could work with organizations that supported boycotting the Jewish state. While she was never excluded from these organizations, Irwin lost interest in participating. Instead, she spent two years in leadership roles with GW for Israel. I was like, okay, these aren't really spaces for me, said Irwin, who graduated last spring. It just changed my trajectory of what I thought I'd do in college. The polarized nature of Israel on campus makes it hard to find a middle ground between GW for Israel's proud support for Zionism and Jewish Voice for Peace's staunch opposition. J Street U tries to split the difference, but its members say they still encounter vitriol. The group has hosted fundraisers and lectures with GW for Israel, but its politics are different. The J Street chapter criticizes the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, for example, while GW for Israel has called that term misleading. Alicia Glassman helps run J Street U on campus and said that while many are drawn to GW for Israel for its cultural events and free food, her club better reflects most Jewish students' politics, supportive of the Jewish state but critical of Israel's oppression of Palestinians. I would not say GW for Israel is the primary position of people even within their organization, Glassman said. At a J Street U event about American military aid to Israel last fall, several members mentioned how refreshing it was to discuss the conflict without pointing fingers. I feel like Zionism and anti-Zionism are words that are thrown around a lot, noted Eliana Pirotti, who taught Hebrew school during high school and is majoring in public health. I try not to take one single difference and then use that as an excuse to not learn more. J Street shares a Hillel staff advisor with GW for Israel and hosts its events at the Hillel building. And Jeremy Ben-Ami, J Street's president, last month defined the group as Zionist, 
and anti-BDS, referring to the boycott movement against Israel. But that hasn't stopped its members from facing the same kind of harassment that members of Jewish Voice for Peace report. Sometimes the line is drawn so fast, said Hyatt Aronoff, a co-chair of the GW chapter. People will be like J Street. You're literally anti-Semitic. It's like, okay, what? These clashes among young Jews are rarely acknowledged by outside organizations, which tend to depict a campus battle between Jews and virulent anti-Semites. The American Jewish Committee, for example, dubbed the flurry of social media posts and student government resolutions targeting Israel during its military campaign in Gaza last year as examples of Jew hate on campus. Students tend to see these internal divisions more clearly and notice how they have trickled down to affect Jewish life on campus broadly. By all appearances, the vigil held following the Torah vandalism last year was an apolitical event. There were no protesters there to harangue the students carrying the replica Torah, still covered in blue liquid laundry soap. A campus rabbi hung a mezuzah at the ransacked fraternity, then another at a Jewish sorority, and nearly 500 students crowded the streets and sidewalks chanting Am Yisrael Chai, a popular Jewish cheer and patriotic of charged, slo charged slogan in Israel that translates to the people of Israel live. Yet Fryman, the co-president of Jewish Voice for Peace, said her organization was shut out of the event. Years of being called an anti-Semite by other Jews, she added, made it hard to feel connected to the community and to emotionally process incidents like the Torah vandalism. I don't ever have a sense of solidarity when those things come about, Fryman said. That just sucks. These concerns receive short shrift from the Jewish establishment. Jonathan Greenblatt, the ADL's chief executive, mocked Jewish Voice for Peace in a May speech and called its members extremists who emboldened people to slur Jews, vandalize synagogues, beat up Orthodox Jews, and even commit murder. Neither their identity nor their intent relieves them of responsibility for their actions, Greenblatt said. The students whom Greenblatt and other national Jewish leaders pledged to protect take a more nuanced view. GW, for Israel's leaders, uh, were critical of JVP, noting they served non-kosher food at Shabbat dinners and questioning whether all of the group's members, a relatively small number they are also quick to note, are Jewish. But they also understood that many of their Jewish peers do not share their particular brand of Zionism. I grew up assuming everyone who was Jewish was pro-Israel, and then I came here, said Stone, the club's education director. Being Jewish here is a really large spectrum. You never really know what you're getting. Arno Rosenfeld is an enterprise reporter for The Forward where he covers anti-Semitism, philanthropy, and American Jewish institutions. And next we'll go over to JTA. First article, An Epidemic of Hate. Biden administration officials meet with Jewish leaders to tackle rising anti-Semitism by Ron Campeas, Washington. Top Biden administration officials launched a roundtable on anti-Semitism Wednesday by describing a rising tide of anti-Semitism and likening the atmosphere in the United States to that of Europe where Jewish worship is held under lock and key. Right now, there is an epidemic of hate facing our country, said Douglas Emhoff, the Jewish second gentleman who convened and chaired the 90-minute session. 
Jewish officials represented at the meeting were impressed by how comprehensive the meeting was, saying it went beyond the white supremacist threat that the Biden administration has focused on in the past to other sources, among them attackers who target the visibly orthodox and Jewish students on campuses. The meeting in the Eisenhower Executive Office building adjacent to the White House comes on the heels of weeks of anti-Semitic invective spewed by rapper Kanye West, who now goes by Yee, and the dinner attended last month by West, Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes, and former President Donald Trump at Trump's Florida residence. The discussion also follows alarming spikes in anti-Semitic invective on Twitter and other platforms. In my experience, there's nothing more vicious than what we're seeing today, said Susan Rice, President Joe Biden's top domestic policy advisor who described growing up in a heavily Jewish neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Ten years ago, Rice said when she was defending Israel against its many enemies as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, she did not imagine a threat to Jews domestically. Now she says she hears anti-Semitic expressions coming from elected officials, public figures, and entertainers, calling it an incredible rising tide. Deborah Lipstadt, the State Department envoy to monitor anti-Semitism, said she no longer has the luxury of her predecessors who traveled abroad to assess anti-Semitism in foreign countries. Now, she said, she had to, tr had to treat the problem as a domestic and foreign one. I can't go to these countries and say, you have a problem, she said. Now I have to say, we have a serious problem. After multiple attacks on synagogues statewide in recent years, she said Jewish places of worship were becoming more visibly fortified than they were for years when security, if it existed, was unobtrusive and synagogues were welcoming. For decades, when we traveled in Europe, we used to identify synagogues by gendarmes, she said. Now we see police cars. Now we lock the doors in the United States. The Kanye West episodes evidently helped spur the uh, the convening of the meeting, George Salim, the Anti-Defamation League senior vice president who was present, said the meeting came together within a week, unlike similar events which can take months to organize. The urgency was clear. The meeting needed to be convened. It needed to be in person, he told JTA. Representatives of the dozen or so groups that attended were impressed by the level of attention. In addition to Amoff Rice and Lipstadt, there were officials from the National Security Council, the Office of Public Engagement, and the Office of Faith-Based Partnerships. The representatives were impressed by how personal Emoff, who was married to Vice President Kamala Harris, made the battle. He described how moved he has been by American Jews who are proud of him. The first Jewish spouse of a president or vice president. I'm in plain sight right now. Our community is in pain, he said. Emoff's unabashed identification with the Jewish community helped elevate the issue of combating anti-Semitism, said Rabbi Levi Shemtov, the executive vice president of American Friends of Lubavitch. He and I might see Jewish ritual and practice a little differently, but one thing Jewish people will remember forever in our history is that when the time came for him to make his decision, he decided to identify unequivocally as a Jew, Shemtov said. Amy Spitalnik, the executive director of Integrity First for America, 
the group that underwrote successful lawsuits against the neo-Nazis who organized the deadly 2017 march in Charlottesville, Virginia, said the officials closely listened to every presentation. The media was present for opening remarks by government officials and was, was ushered out so that representatives of Jewish groups could speak freely. We were watching them take copious notes. They were genuinely listening, she told JTA. The range of invitees and the topics addressed also extended beyond the threat posed to Jews from the extreme right, an area that has until now been the Biden administration's focus. Though a summit on extremism in September and a speech Biden gave in Philadelphia last summer. Speakers addressed anti-Semitic attacks on the visibly orthodox, which, particularly in the New York area, are most often not carried out by white supremacists. And there were officials from at least three groups that represent the visibly orthodox. The Orthodox Union, which is modern orthodox, along with Agudath Israel of America and American Friends of Lubavitch, which are Haredi orthodox. Speakers also were sensitive to the plight of Jewish students on college campuses who often face hostility from peers whose sharp criticism of Israel can sometimes manifest as anti-Semitism. On college campuses, the supposed bastions of liberal ideas and ideals, many students believe it better to camouflage their Jewish identity, Lipstadt said. One of the speakers was Julia Jassy, a senior at the University of Chicago who is the CEO of Jewish on Campus, a student group that tracks anti-Semitism on campuses. The Jewish participants said they benefited from hearing how other exper others experienced anti-Semitism. Abba Cohen, Aguda's Washington director, said he found receptive li listeners when he described an increased effort by local councils to limit the building of Orthodox communities. He and Nathan Diamant, the Washington director of the Orthodox Union, also described the threat to the visibly Orthodox. Their accounts moved others present who do not live in the orthodox, uh, live the orthodox lifestyle. We all have different experiences with anti-Semitism, and clearly, for someone who's orthodox, it might not, uh, it might feel different than for someone who's not," said Sheila Katz, the CEO of the National Council of Jewish Women. Katz said the meeting was a relief because she often has difficulty explaining to her progressive allies why anti-Semitism persists as a threat. I feel like in the last, you know, year, I've been saying over and over again, this is getting worse. This is getting amplified. People are emboldened, she said. And there are a lot, particularly in the progressive community, that would say, no, no, that's not what's happening. Some practical proposals were discussed, including a letter this week from a bipartisan slate of lawmakers advocating for a cross-agency whole-of-government task force to combat anti-Semitism and an expansion of federal funding that currently underwrites security upgrades for Jewish institutions to include paying for extra police patrols. The meeting did not result in concrete decisions, but participants said they left with the impression that the federal government was ready to dive deep into finding practicable solutions. For me, this is not the end. This is just the beginning of this conversation, Emoff said. Other groups represented included the American Jewish Committee, Hillel International, the Jewish Federations of North America, the Reform and Conservative Movements, the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, and Secure Community Network, the Security Consultancy for the Jewish Community. 
It sends a very important message that the sort of rampant anti-Semitism we're seeing is unacceptable and that the highest office in the country is doing something about it, Spitalnik said. Next from JTA, Ukrainian Jews have historically spoken Russian. The war is changing that by Jacob Judah. Lviv, Ukraine. Three rabbis sat around a breakfast table in the city's Tsori Gilad synagogue discussing Russia's war on the country, where they work in a mixture of Yiddish, Hebrew, and Russian. They named their hometowns as Lugansk, Lvov, and Dnepr, the Russian names for Ukrainian cities that have vaulted into international headlines since Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Although they were focused on Ukraine's progress in the fighting, the rabbis uttered not a single word in Ukrainian. How could they? Like the vast majority of Jews in Ukraine, none of them speaks the country's official language. Russian has long been the first language for a wide swath of Ukrainians, including the majority of the country's Jews. But after the Russian invasion, many Ukrainians decided they want to speak less Russian and more Ukrainian. Many Jews, similarly horrified by the sight of thousands of Russian soldiers pouring over Ukraine's borders and wishing to demonstrate their Ukrainian bona fides, have made the same choice, even as it means disrupting a long linguistic tradition. So, when the rabbi's successors meet for pancakes and sour cream, they will be far more likely to introduce themselves as the rabbis of Luhansk, Lviv, and Dnipro, the Ukrainian names for their hometowns that have become the standard in English. They will also likely be able to hand their students and congregants Ukrainian language versions of central Jewish texts that simply do not exist now. Many of my friends say they are embarrassed to use Russian as a language. They say that we are Ukrainian Jews and that Russia is a terrorist country fighting us and that we shouldn't use their language said Rabbi Meyer Stambler from Dnipro. Others say that Russian President Vladimir Putin doesn't own the Russian language. It is an issue. He added, this is something that people are discussing all the time. A decade ago, half of Ukrainians said they spoke Russian as their native language. That number has declined to 20%, fueled in part by resentment over Russia's aggressions in Crimea, a contested region that had annexed by force in 2014. But Jews have remained predominantly Russian-speaking, even in parts of western Ukraine where Ukrainian has long been the dominant language. Russian and Ukrainian are related linguistically, but their speakers cannot understand each other. Russia's war in Ukraine has Ukrainian Jews playing catch-up. Stambler, who heads the Federation of Jewish Communities, body affiliated with the Hasidic Chabad Lubavitch movement that operates a network of 36 synagogues around Ukraine offers a stark prediction. Within 10 years, every Jew in Ukraine will speak Ukrainian. The dominance of Russian among Ukraine's Jews who numbered in the tens of thousands before the war has deep roots. The historical trajectory of Jews in what is now Ukraine led them in the 19th century to adopt Russian rather than Ukrainian, said, says historian Natan Meyer, a professor of Judaic studies at Portland State University. That was because Ukrainian was perceived as a peasant language that did not have any high culture associated with it because there were no economic advantages to adopting Ukrainian at the time. 
Now, the upside of switching to Ukrainian, demonstrating a national allegiance during a time of war, couldn't be better, couldn't be clearer. Jews feel like uh, Jews feel quite integrated into Ukrainian society, but a shift, even if it is a gradual shift, to Ukrainian is going to make that more tangible than ever, Meyer said, calling the Russian invasion absolutely game-changing for Ukrainian Jews. They will be perceived even more strongly than they have been as being wholly Ukrainian and part of the fabric of Ukrainian society. Most Ukrainian Jews especially those educated since the collapse of the Soviet Union, can now speak some Ukrainian, but their ability often depends on where they grew up. Many Jews in traditionally Russophone cities such as Odessa, Dnipro, and Kharkiv can struggle with the language while their grandparents often cannot speak it at all. Not more than 20% were Ukrainian speaking at home, says Stabler. Take President Vladimir Zelensky. He knew Ukrainian, but he didn't speak it at home, and he had to polish it up when he became president. It will not be simple for the Jewish community to suddenly switch to Ukrainian, the most widely spoken European language without a standardized translation of the Torah. Two years ago, a team of translators working in Israel, Austria, and Hungary began working to produce Ukrainian-language Jewish texts, but before the Russian invasion, the effort had so far produced only a Ukrainian book of Psalms or Tehillim. In May, two months into the war, a decision was made to accelerate work on a daily prayer book. A Torah could follow. The Chumash is difficult, said Stamler, who oversees the half-dozen strong team of translators from his base in Dnipro, using the Hebrew word for the printed form of the Torah. We are working on it. While translating sacred texts can take years, other changes have come faster. The leaflets, brochures, and calendars that are a fixture at any Jewish center in Ukraine were quickly swapped out Russian for Ukrainian, at least at the Federation's headquarters. Before February, these had been produced and printed by Russian Jewish communities and shared with those in Ukraine for simplicity's sake. This differentiation from Russian Jewry is going to be huge, said Meyer, the historian, up until this point, they have essentially formed one linguistic and cultural space that all Jews, whether they were in Ukraine, Russia, or Belarus, could move freely between. Now the ties between those communities are both logistically complicated to maintain, trade routes have been ruptured, and also potentially a liability at a time when anyone in either Russia or Ukraine showing an affinity for the other country can face suspicion or penalties. This shift, if it actually happens, is going to be marking out a totally new cultural space for Ukrainian Jews and almost a declaration of independence, Meyer said, or at least that is the aspiration because there is so much of their heritage, which is still based in the Russian language, that it is going to be a long time before they can finally separate. That separation process, which began to take shape most clearly after 2014, has quickened. We started doing things ourselves, said Stambler. We used to do about 20% in Ukrainian for the Jews in western towns like Lviv, Ivano, Frankovich, and Ujarod, but we are making a much stronger push now. He estimates that some 75% of material being distributed to Ukrainian Jewish communities by the Federation of Jewish Communities was in Ukrainian by September, up from 20% to 35% in January. 
Young rabbis who've come from the United States or Israel to serve small Jewish communities across Ukraine now say they have had to add Ukrainian alongside their Russian classes. I began with Russian, said one of those rabbis who worked in Vinitsia until he decided over the summer that he had to learn Ukrainian. I realized that I had to learn Ukrainian because I needed it on the street. I needed it to speak with the government and with the media. Some Ukrainian Jews are voting with their voices. My whole life I only spoke Russian, said Olha Peresunko, who before the war lived in Mykolaiv in southern Ukraine. But after the 24th of January, I'm speaking only Ukrainian. Peresunko was speaking outside of Lviv synagogue this fall, where she and other refugees were waiting for food parcels. She had fled Mykolaiv, which has sustained repeated assault by Russian troops for Lviv with her mother and two children while her husband is on the front lines. Her children are finding it hard to adjust to the exclusive Ukrainian environment in Lviv, but she is confident that they will make the shift. They will speak Ukrainian as their first language, Parasunko said. Exactly how much the shift to Ukrainian will change local media, uh, rather local Jewish communities, is a matter of debate. Rabbi Sholom Gopin, who fled Kyiv in 2014 from his home community in Luhansk, an overwhelmingly Russophone city seized by Russia-backed separatists at the time, said he too believes that Ukrainians will displace the Russian as the lingua franca of Ukrainian Jewry. They're starting to slowly speak Ukrainian, he said. It's no problem. There are lots of Jews in America who speak English. We live here and we speak the languages of the places that we live. It is normal. But Gopin said the linguistic shift means nothing amid other issues facing Jews in Ukraine, where Russia's war is threatening to undo 30 years of Jewish community building, largely, though not exclusively, led by Chabad, Gopin's Orthodox movement. The problem for the Jews of Ukraine is not language, he said. It is about how much they are going to synagogue or how many children are going to Jewish schools not about what they are speaking. Natalia Kozahuk, 45, a Jewish businesswoman in Lviv, sees only upside to shedding Russian, her native language. She has started to speak to her children only in Ukrainian. It will be hugely positive if Jews speak more Ukrainian, Kozahuk said. This is the only way that Jews can truly learn more about the Ukrainian people, she said, about their history and the positive qualities and strengths of Ukraine. Only good can come of it, she added. We will understand each other better. And next from JTA, as fear of local extremism grows, Germany approves first ever, ever government plan to combat anti-Semitism by Toby, Toby Axelrod, Berlin. Just days before news of a planned far-right terrorist plot to overthrow Germany's government has stoked fears about the rise of extremism here, Government officials approved Germany's first-ever program specifically designed to fight anti-Semitism and promote Jewish life. Approved last Thursday by the entire German cabinet and presented in Berlin by Felix Klein, Germany's commissioner on anti-Semitism, the national strategy against anti-Semitism and for Jewish life, highlights best practices and recommends new actions to be taken on political and societal levels. The 
plot foiled last Wednesday was organized by a group inspired by QAnon conspiracy theories and far-right ideology espoused by parties growing in influence across Europe, including the AFD in Germany. At least 25 people, including a former parliamentarian and former members of German special military forces, were arrested in approximately 130 raids, CBS News reported. The group, comprised of a widespread underground network, aimed to attack the Bundestag, Germany's parliament. A rise in the number of neo-Nazis and other extremists in the German military have alarmed officials in recent years. Far-right extremists have been involved in multiple terror attacks, including on a synagogue in Halle in 2019. Federal data showed a significant uptick in anti-Semitic crimes across the country from 2020 to 2021, but a report this week from the RIAS watchdog group showed that anti-Semitic incidents in Berlin in the first half of this year dropped from 450, uh, dropped to 450, from a total of 574 in the same period last year. The German government's new strategy identifies five fields of action. Data collection, research and accurate assessment of anti-Semitism, education as prevention, new approaches to Holocaust remembrance, increasing security, and making current and past Jewish life in Germany visible. The 52-page plan is an answer to the European Union's 2021 call to action, in which member states were urged to submit national strategies to combat anti-Semitism by the end of 2022. Germany's top Jewish leader welcomed the government's proposal. The emphasis on the perspective of those affected is an important sign at the right time for the Jewish community of Germany, Joseph Schuster, head of the Central Council of Jews in Germany, said in a statement. Especially the anti-Semitic incidents at the Documenta and the way they were dealt with have shown in a blatant way how Jewish voices are ignored, he said, referring to a controversial uh, referring to controversial works presented at this year's International Art Fair in Kassel. This is not the first time that Germany has doubled down its efforts to fight anti-Semitism. Past initiatives have included pro-democracy education, outreach to people who have left, uh, left extremist groups, projects designed to introduce Jews and Jewish diversity to the non-Jewish public, laws introduced to bar new forms of anti-Jewish expression, and more. Before the anniversary of Kristallnacht this year, the government distributed posters challenging a series of tropes, including comparisons between Israel and the United States. Client said the new plan aims to bundle and improve existing measures, identify gaps, and create optimal conditions for preventing and, combining and, and combating hatred of Jews. He referred specifically to anti-Semitism linked to the hatred of Israel, which he said is growing in intellectual and academic milieus. The German Bundestag formally endorsed the working definition of anti-Semitism formulated by the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, which includes certain forms of Israel criticism in 2017. Klein was joined at a presentation of the plan by his colleague on the European Union level, the EU Commissioner for Combating Anti-Semitism and Promoting Jewish Life, Katharina von Schnurbein, also of Germany, called the strategy a milestone for Germany that could provide important impetus internationally. 
The plan was two years in the making, involving input from all federal ministries and more than 40 Jewish and non-Jewish civil society organizations. Schuster lauded the strategy for taking up practical issues faced by Jews today, including poverty among Jewish immigrants and anti-Semitism in schools. It addresses the fact that some schools still schedule exams without consideration for the Jewish calendar, an example of what he said could be called invisibility. The stated commitment to reconciling exam dates with Jewish holidays is a positive signal that should be implemented promptly, Schuster said. And next from the Jewish Week, just in time for Hanukkah, an irreverent Jewish adaptation of A Christmas Carol debuts on stage by Julia Gergeli. A selfish social media influencer, an all-knowing benevolent spirit known as the Hanukkah Fairy, and a good-natured cockney orphan right out of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol may seem like they all come from different worlds, but each appears as a character in A Hanukkah Carol or Gelt Trip the Musical, a show its creators hope will become a winter tradition for years to come. For co-creators Harrison Bryan, Rob Berliner, and Aaron Kenny, the light-hearted Hanukkah Carol is their answer to the inundation of Christmas material and cheer throughout December. There is a plethora of Christmas entertainment options that we get every holiday season, especially in New York City, said Jewish actor and playwright Bryan, a native of Brooklyn. For me growing up, there was a sense that Hanukkah is the second-place holiday. His new musical, however, feels like this is an opportunity to join the party in a way that feels authentic, he said. It's just allowing the season to feel more inclusive in a city that prides itself on being a melting plot. The plot of the Hanukkah Carol centers around Chaya Knipshin, Chava Knipshin, a cruel and manipulative, manipulative social media influencer who hides her Jewish identity because she was bullied as a child. But on one memorable Hanukkah, Chava is visited by spirits of the past, present, and future to reckon with her life's work, namely her pursuit of internet fame by posting mean and embarrassing photos of her friends and family before it is too late. It's a very obvious Jewish take on Dickens' 1843 novella A Christmas Carol, which has already been adopted into other plays, movies, and more in what feels like a thousand times over. But to remake this classic in a Jewish way feels refreshing, adding new depth by exploring themes of Jewish pride, tradition, family, and tikkun olam, which means repairing the world. After all, what is a Christmas carol if not a guilt trip or a guilt trip that's stereotypical purview of Jewish mothers everywhere? Brian claims the show is authentically Jewish, but not exclusively, meaning he and partners Uh, want their version of A Christmas Carol to be something Jews can participate in and love for themselves. At the same time, however, due to the musical's inclusive and heartwarming holiday message, it can be appreciated by anyone. There's no Hanukkah classic yet. There's not a Hanukkah film or show that people go to see as a matter of tradition. Lyricist and co-book writer Berliner told the New York Jewish Week, We have the opportunity to take our decades of Jewish life and pop culture and comedic sensibilities and love of musical theater and sense of what's commercial and merge it all together and see how we could present something that even non-Jewish friends would love. Well, that's all we have the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you as always for listening. <laughs>